Good morning, Golden Hills. It is a pleasure to be with you this morning. And uh, as was mentioned, uh, my name is Jacob, and along with my wife, Sonia, and our seven children, we are global partners of Golden Hills working in Chad. And you'll see this nice picture up here. It's actually a little bit old, but most of our kids are on there. And so uh, our oldest son, his name is Nehemiah. Then we have Evangeline. After that is Athanasius. Then Hadessa. Our fifth is Perpetua. The small baby there is Sahara. And we just had a little seven-month-old seven born this spring named Zateo. Don't worry, I won't require you to remember all of those names. Well, we have spent the last 13 years of our lives over in Africa and are currently leading a team that is working amongst the Omega, a people whom Andrew just said, uh, are many, many in this church have prayed for and care about deeply. So it is my privilege to not only bring my greetings from our team, but also from all of the area of workers that are in Chad. I also find it a pleasure to be able to open the word of God with you this morning. This morning's message is titled, Resolve to Do Good, and the text we'll be working from is Galatians 6, 1 through 10. So please go there in your Bibles with me. As you do, I want to remind us where we've come from and where we're going this morning. When I first looked at Paul's summary of this morning's verses in Galatians 6, 10 and read, do good to everyone, I thought to myself, wow, the church leaders are really entrusting a difficult message to me. Hey church, newsflash, God wants you to do good to everyone. Of course, there is much more than that command than just those words. After all, Galatians is a letter, not a post-it note. Paul has been laboring in this letter to awaken the church to the false gospel that has crept into their midst by giving them the theological foundations of the true gospel. Namely, that they were justified and made free, not by circumcision, keeping the law or works of the flesh, but by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And in that freedom we have in Christ, Paul has just invited the church at Galatia and us to keep in step with the Spirit by loving our neighbor as we love ourselves. So if you heard those words last week from Paul, like most Americans, and said, that's great, Paul, but what does that mean practically? How do I keep in step with the Spirit when traffic is moving a foot per minute, or my neighbor's music is too loud, or the parishioner behind me in church just told me that my kids are too bouncy? If that's you, you're going to love today's message because Paul is going to get a little bit practical with us. So follow along with me as we read the text for this morning's message from Galatians 6, verses 1 through 10. Brothers, if anyone is caught up in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. 
for each will have to bear his own load. Let the one who is taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked, for whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. This is the word of God. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we just sang the words, Holy, there is no one like you. There is none beside you. And now, God, we want to ask that you would open up our eyes in wonder. Show us who you are in your word. Fill us with your heart. Lead us in your love to those around us. Lord, there is a world both here and out beyond this nation that needs to behold the wondrous mystery of Christ. So, Lord, to that end, would you use Paul's words to the church of Galatia to stir our hearts to love and good deeds. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, just so we're on the same page, here's how we'll walk through our passage this morning. I want to start with Paul's summary at the end of this section, then move through the three examples he gives of doing good before closing with a word about endurance. As we move through this morning, I will share stories from Chad, and my hope is that you'll not only be encouraged to persevere in doing good to others here in California and at Golden Hills, but that you'll also feel better equipped to know how you might love others around the world. So in verse 10 of Galatians 6, Paul summarizes this passage this way. So then, as we have opportunities, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Paul believes it's important that we do good things for others. Now, before we unpack that seeming contradiction with so much of the rest of his letter, I want to first draw your attention to the accompanying clauses surrounding this command. First, when are we called to perform these good works? Did you see it? He says, as we have opportunity. Do you realize how many opportunities God presents us with every day? Whether it's greeting others at church, holding a door for the person behind us as they enter, or saying thanks to an usher for serving, there are so many opportunities we are presented with every day. As I thought about this, I wondered, am I more interested in protecting myself from the abundance of these opportunities or seeking them out by God's grace so that I can bless others. Paul is radically inviting us to do good to others as we have opportunity. Next note, who the benefactors 
are of these good deeds. Let us do good to who? To everyone, and especially to those who are in the household of faith. Like Christ's parable, where the servant is told to go out and to everyone in the highways and byways and invite them to the feast, Paul does not want these good works to only be performed for an exclusive group. He wants everyone to benefit from our good works. Family members, friends, neighbors, co-workers, random people in public. Do good to them, Golden Hills. At the same time, Paul does, not make, does make it clear that the body of Christ holds a special priority, and it should in our hearts. So let us especially keep our eyes peeled for opportunities to do good to others here in the body of Christ. Now what about all this talk of doing good works, Paul? Someone might think because Paul spent so much time in his letter to the Galatians focusing on the theology of the gospel by faith in Christ, not by doing works, that therefore he would look down upon good works and acts of charity and simply encourage the church to rest in the assurance they have in Christ's atonement. Yet here he is telling us that walking in the freedom of Christ and keeping in step with the Spirit should involve doing good to others. I think Paul would nod in agreement with James when he writes, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled. Without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Paul's heart was to see the gospel of Christ spread and for God to receive the glory due his name. He knew Christ's words, so let your light shine before men so that they may see what? Your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Think of your own testimony or how others around you came to faith. Did it have more to do with seeing God through deep theological explanations that won you over or seeing him through the love of his people evidenced in good deeds? Well, I believe both are vitally important. I think that many are initially drawn because of the love of God they see in the good deeds of his people. One of our first years in Chad, I met a young man. His name was Abdul Bassett. And like many Chadians, he was excited to meet a Westerner. And we started greeting one another, sharing about our families. And I did with Abdul Bassett what I do with a lot of people in Chad. And uh, as we have discussion, I invite them to come visit me at my place where we can have more discussion together. And Abdul Bassett was eager. He was not slow in receiving my invitation. And that night, he showed up at our house as I was getting my kids ready for bed. <laughs> and so he sat on the edge of the veranda as I uh, read from the Bible to my kids and played with them and rolled around and wrestled and then eventually got them ready and put them in bed. And as I came out, Abdul Bassett and I uh, started talking some more. 
he wanted to know why we were here, and I asked him about his family a little bit. And during that time, in the background was a man droning on over a loudspeaker. In Chad, they call these people muazin. A muazin is the guy who does the call to prayer. You know, maybe you've seen it in movies where you hear the Allahu Akbar. And in Chad, if you want to bestow honor upon someone else that maybe has passed away or something significant has happened in a family, uh, people will pay that muazin to do recitations from the Quran, from the Hadiths, and it's done in the name or the honor of that person. And so this particular night, the muazin was droning on and on. And at one point, Abdul Basit looked up at me and he said, did you hear what that guy just said? And I said, I think so, but why don't you tell me so I make sure I understood. <laughs> and Abdul Basit said to me in Arabic, he said, the man said, O Muhammad, you are our light. Show us the path to God. And then Abdul Basit leaned over and in a low voice said to me, our people are ignorant. Muhammad is dead. I, I was sitting on a veranda, but I almost fell over. <laughs> uh, though people know that is true about Muhammad, I have never heard a Muslim say that. And so scrambling for my Bible, I started sharing from Hebrews about why Jesus is a better and living way and how he is a, a living intermediary between us and God. And as the days went forward, Abdul Basit continued to come back, and we started to read the scriptures together. Well, I like to do this with Chadians as we start reading the word. I'm really interested in their stories and, and how God is working in their life and what makes them interested. And so at some point down the road, I asked Abdul Basit, I said, Abdul Basit, I'm really curious. Why did you start reading the Bible with me? You know what he said? It was because I watched you with your children. You know, sometimes as evangelists and overseas workers, we think we have to come up with these big, difficult explanations of the Trinity and, and how Jesus died on the cross so that we can convince people about Jesus. When oftentimes they're watching to see what are our, what are our actions, what are we doing? You see, Abdul Basit said, Jacob, I'm 25 years old, and I'm one of 27 children that my father has. I didn't meet my dad till I was nine years old, and over the 25 years of my life, I have maybe known him for three years. I saw more love in the 15 minutes I watched you with your kids than I've ever experienced from my dad, and I was curious, where does that kind of love come from? Golden Hills, the world is watching. Let us do good to everyone that they might see Christ in us. Having discussed Paul's command to do good to others, let's backtrack now to talk about the specific practical examples he gives us here in Galatians 6, beginning with the first in verse 1. 
Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Paul's first example of a practical good that we can do to others, and especially our brothers, is to restore them. Paul doesn't assign this task of restoration to just anyone, but says it's supposed to be done by you who are spiritual. Paul isn't speaking about some elite group of Christians, but he's simply speaking to each believer whom he has already explained in Galatians chapter 4, verse 6, has received the Spirit into their hearts. So each of us who have received this Spirit are called to the practical work of restoration. Which brings us to another question. Who are we to restore? Paul says, anyone. Anyone caught in any transgression. In the context of a letter written to a church that perplexed Paul and made him wonder if he had labored in vain, it's easy to see that this restoration is aimed at sinners in the body of Christ. Does this surprise you? That there can be redeemed saints in the church who are caught in sin? It shouldn't, if we look in the mirror each day. Over the past seven years of working with the Omega people in Chad, our team has seen the number of known Omega believers go from a handful to now over 30 believers. There is no official church yet, as they are spread out in various places, but even this group of believers flummoxes me, probably the same way that I puzzle my wife. Over the course of one week earlier this year, we had a young believer who was caught viewing pornography, another who took a job delivering illegal drugs to the refugee camp, and a third who was blatantly lying to fellow believers. I felt like I was in the book of Acts. But just like I need my wife to restore me when I am caught in sin, just as we need one another, so each of these brothers needed to be restored. Paul wants all of us to have the spirit to restore those among us who have sinned. It's important to notice here the way we are to restore them. We are to restore him in a spirit of gentleness. That encouragement for gentleness goes hand in hand with the warning to keep watch on yourself lest you be tempted. While it's possible that the warning to keep watch on yourself, that it could be referring to falling into the same temptation, I think it's more likely that Paul is particularly concerned about the temptation of pride. We must seek to restore one another from the position of a fellow sinner saved by grace, not from the position of a pious superior looking down on their infractions. We understand that when one member of the body hurts, the whole body hurts. We want to see the whole body restored and functioning optimally. Though I've been in Africa a long time, I haven't forgotten 
all the years I've been a part of the American church. These words from Paul to restore others challenge me deeply. Sadly, other than my parents and wife, I can count on one hand the number of times a brother or sister in Christ has sought to restore me. And that's not because I'm without sin. I'm not doing much better on the flip side of that equation. How about you, brothers and sisters? When's the last time someone confronted you about a sin in your life? When's the last time you lovingly sought to restore another? Is it possible that certain cultural norms and values have taken precedent over God's call to restore the one who is caught in sin? May it not be. During these last three years in Chad, I had the tremendous privilege of doing a workshop that produced stories from the Bible in the Omega language. During this workshop, we had a group of Omega people that helped us um, to take 60 stories from Genesis to Revelation and craft them into the Omega language. And during that time, God did a wonderful thing. We started out the workshop with one Christian amongst a group and four Muslims. By the end of the workshop, there were four Christians and one Muslim. It's amazing what the Word of God does. During the second workshop, one of the young men who was a part of the group, his name was Mubarak, Mubarak came up to me and he said, Jacob, I have a problem. And I said, what's your problem? He said, I love the Word of God. And if my dad knew what I was doing in this workshop, I would have big problems. And so Mubarak and I started to talk about that. And then we started to meet, to read the Word of God together. And six months later, Mubarak professed faith in Christ. Three weeks after that profession of faith, he called me one night and he said, Jacob, I think God wants me to tell my dad. And oh, me of little faith. I replied, are you sure? I don't know if that sounds very smart. <laughs> and Mubarak said to me, he said, Jacob, I think my dad would be the most difficult person to tell about my faith in Christ. But if I could tell him, then I think I'd be able to tell anyone that God asked me to. That's what I knew God was talking about. And so Mubarak did. And for the last two years, Mubarak has been on the run for his life. He has been detained, chained up, beaten, and mistreated many, many times. But this young man is on fire for the Lord. It's amazing to watch. 
Not only is he growing by leaps and bounds in his own faith, but he's also led another man to faith, Muhammad. Now, Muhammad's faith, not quite the same. He's still scared that anybody would know he's a follower of Jesus. But he loves Mubarak. And he's helped him many times as he's been caught. And they're, they're like two strong brothers together. But two months ago, I got a call from our team in Chad. And they said, Jacob Mubarak was abducted today. One day while Mubarak was in the market, two men grabbed him from behind, put a bag over his head, tied him up, and threw him in a car. And when they stopped for their Islamic prayers as they were driving away, Mubarak got the phone out and called our team really quick to let them know what had happened. So that as the team was trying to figure out what to do, they went to Muhammad, because he had helped so many times. And Muhammad gave some very strange replies. He said, oh yeah, it's okay, don't worry about it. I know where Mubarak is. And the many people who were talking with Muhammad were saying, this doesn't seem right. You know where he is? Were you a part of this abduction? And suspicion started to grow. You see, Muhammad wanted to comfort the team. And so he did what a lot of Muslims do. He lied. And he kept on lying. And he kept on lying. And for weeks and weeks, this grew and grew. And nobody was willing to restore him, to confront him about those lies. Well, what was really happening to Mubarak during that time was that he was taken by two of his cousins who recognized him and knew that his father was looking for him, that there was a ransom. And so they called his father after a couple days and said, we have Mubarak. What do you want us to do? And the father said, if he's willing to return to Islam, bring him back to me. If not, kill him. And one of the cousins took a gun out and put it to his head. But Mubarak would not deny his faith. Thankfully, one of the other cousins said, let's not kill him this way. And they beat Mubarak, tortured him, drove him out in the desert and left him to die. You see, in Chad, this is a common way that people do away with their enemies. Nobody lives in some of these northern deserted areas. But in the mercy of God, there was an army patrol vehicle that was looking for smugglers that day. They saw the vehicle tracks, followed them, found the footprints, followed them, and then found Mubarak laying in a heap in the sand a day after he had been left there. You see, they thought he was an escaped convict because he was in chains. And they were going to bring him back to the local authorities, which would have started this process all over again for him. But Mubarak cleverly said, Hey, I know it's a big task for you. I don't want to give you a big task. Can I call my father? And then Mubarak was given a phone, and he called Muhammad. Muhammad immediately drove through the night on a motorcycle, 
pick him up, presented himself as his father, and the soldiers handed him over, and Mubarak was saved. Now, as they returned to the village, and they got back to the church, and uh, one of the people there started to ask Mubarak, what's, you know, what's happened? Tell, you know, tell us, explain what's gone on. And as Mubarak started to say these things, the man looked at Muhammad and said, wait a second, you said all these other things were happening. That's not what Mubarak is saying. Why did you say that? Muhammad had nothing to say. And so that man did, finally, what Muhammad really needed. He said, Muhammad, I was there on the day of your profession of faith. I was there at your baptism. As you said, you are leaving behind the old life. And you are walking new in Christ. You must leave behind those old habits of lying. And speak the truth. Brothers and sisters, let us not leave the opportunity to restore others around us. It is an important work that Christ has called us to. Paul's second practical example of how we can do good to others is found in verses 2 through 5, where he says, Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. For each will have to bear his own load. If you want to keep in step with the Spirit and love your neighbor as you love yourself, there may be no clearer way than to bear the burdens of others around us. This not only includes the burdens we might take on when we seek to restore another, but it expands to other burdens as well. You remember Jesus' attitude and what he said about burdens in Matthew 11. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus, our Lord and Savior, was a burden lifter. The greatest example to us of Paul's words to the Galatians, bear one another's burdens. So it might be fitting that Paul adds the extra motivation and tells us when we lift another's burdens, we're fulfilling the law. Which law? The law of Christ. Don't confuse this law with the Mosaic law. One law focuses on doing God's commands in our strength, the Mosaic, while the other sees it accomplished in the person of Christ, the law of Christ. Both laws were good and given by God, but while the Mosaic law pointed to Christ by helping us see that we could not meet its demands in our own flesh, it was being used by false teachers to divide the church and exclude Gentile sinners. Christ removed all divisions, removed all boasting. The law of Christ is the love commandment fulfilled, confirmed, and heightened in the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. 
This is why Paul once again warns us individually about pride. First he said, restore others, but keep watch on yourself lest you be tempted. Here he tells us, bear one another's burdens, but if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, then he deceives himself. Paul knows how easily we can wander from the prayer, Lord, help me to lift my brother's burdens towards the bellowing proclamation. Look how many burdens I'm lifting. Or maybe worse, in an effort to elevate ourselves, we point out to others how much more we've done than them. This is what Jesus said about the Pharisees and burdens. For they preach, but do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. They do all their deeds to be seen by others. Golden Hills, let us bear one another's burdens, not to brandish our credentials of good works, but for the genuine benefit of those who are around us. This brings us to Paul's third practical example of doing good, and it's a narrow and brief one that we'll touch on. He says in verse 6, Let the one who is taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. I promise you, your pastors did not pay me. It's in the text. So who are we called to share all good things with? We're called to share it with those who teach us, with those who lead us. What's the good things that Paul's referring to? Well, think of our own lives. Back in those days and today, good things would have been a roof over our head, food on the table, clothes on our backs, maybe transportation. A good way to understand this in today's context is that we're called to provide for our leaders and for our teachers. We're called to share those good things. They share the word with us. They lead with us. This is the way that we can do good to them. Well, Paul moves from these three practical examples into talking about not becoming weary. Here's what he says in verses 7 through 9. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary of doing good for in due season, we will reap if we do not give up. Paul wants to encourage us, as we're doing good to everyone, to not grow weary. This obviously evidences that doing good is a wearying task, otherwise he wouldn't say this. And so how does he encourage us to not become weary? Well, he does it by reminding us 
to look back at the faithfulness of God. To remember that God will not be mocked. Those who sow, those who live a godly life, will inherit eternal life. And those who ignore God and do not listen to his words will reap corruption. I want to close this morning with a personal story. For me, whenever I, I want to grow in steadfastness and I don't want to become weary, I like to read about other people's steadfastness as they've trusted in the Lord. And this week, I heard just such a story and I thought, I want to share this with my brothers and sisters. This is happening right now as we're sitting here this morning. I got this update on Thursday. The events that are described in this letter took place on Wednesday, and it is still playing out to this day. It comes from one of our global partners. His name is Dave. And it refers to a young man named Bishara who came to faith a while ago when a short-termer left a Bible and he just started reading it. Isn't that just like the Lord? We labor there for years. <laughs> Some short-termer leaves a Bible and a person comes to faith. But over the months, Bishara has been doing good deeds to others in his family. And others have come to faith. And he's been sharing with other people about Christ, and they've been coming to faith. But Bishara's father, like Mubarak's father, is a powerful man, a violent man. And he has heard about what Bishara is doing. This week he was on the way to the capital to meet with Bishara. And this letter describes that meeting. What transpired with Bashar and his dad yesterday was a mix between New Testament narrative and a Wild West showdown at high noon. When Bashar arrived at the house, he noticed a truck with military plates outside. This was an ominous sign that confirmed the worst when he stepped inside the large salon in the house. His father was waiting for him along with his mother, uncle, sister, half-brother, 15 elders from his family's clan, two religious leaders, and two unknown men from a different tribe who were armed. His father, sitting before him, kept his pistol with a silencer on the table next to him. The car, the strange men, the silencer were all telltale signs that his dad was intending to kill Bishara. He confirmed as much soon enough. After greeting Bishara, he said, Why have you become an infidel and ruined our family's name? Our people have heard that my son has left Islam, and the shame of it has spread throughout Chad and the countries around here. Before I shoot you, tell me why you have become a Christian. With that, Bishara began to share his story, how he first received a Bible, how he believed, how he's now a Christian, and how his mom was healed and is now a follower of Jesus. His mother followed these words up with her own. It's true, I've been healed, and I'm a Christian. If you want to stay with me, I'll stay with you. If you want to divorce me, that's okay too but I will not return to Islam. 
At this, Bishar's father turned to his uncle and said, Why didn't you kill Bishar like I told you to? His uncle then recounted how he had tried to, but that after firing two rounds at Bashara's head and seeing the cases hit the floor but not Bashara, he was afraid of what malediction might come his way if he tried again. He told Bashara's dad how he had beaten Bashara, torn up the Bible, but then he himself was hospitalized. How he had a vision of angels and was evangelized by Bashara and believed. This was all news to Bashara's dad. Someone also mentioned that Bishara's sister and half-brother had become Christians, and when his father asked them point-blank, they admitted that they were now Christians too. This is when things took a turn to potentially become a Wild West shoot 'em up The father picked up his gun to shoot Bishara, but his uncle stopped him in his tracks by pulling out his own pistol and said, if you shoot him, no one is going to leave this room alive. After some reflection, his father chose another tactic. He ordered the henchman to take Bishara to the truck. Bishara's mom ran out of the room and came back with a large wooden tool used to beat Millet and declared, you touch my son and I'll crack your heads open. <laughs> Lots of arguing ensued in the room, which took a good while to get everyone settled down again. Once things calmed down a bit, the father asked the clan elders their opinions. Amazingly, their advice was that Bishara, like any other person, should have the right to choose what religion he will follow. This isn't too much unlike Gamaliel's intervention in Acts 5 to the high priest who wanted to kill the apostles. This left his father fuming. It was then the Islamic religious leaders turned to try to convince Bishara to return to Islam. Don't you fear God? They asked him. Bishara's response was brilliant. You've prayed, sacrificed a cow and a sheep to try to heal my father's eye. Were you successful? They had no answer, as it was obvious that his father's left eye was still useless. Having heard enough, his father, enraged again, exclaimed that he was going to kill Bishara. But this time his uncle replied, You keep saying you are going to shoot him. Then do it. Bishara, walk up to your father so that he can shoot you. <laughs> Slowly, Bishara stood up and walked to an arm length of his dad. You have ruined our family name. And you are an infidel, his father repeated. I don't know what else to tell you, Bishara replied. You've disowned me. You can kill me, but I'll die with Jesus. What else do you want from me? His father picked up his gun. But then he heard his mother weeping. If you kill our son, then kill me too, she told her husband. And then his sister and half-brother said the same thing. If you kill him, then kill us too. His uncle also joined them. You will have to bury all of us today if you shoot him. His father was a divided man. Everything in him wanted to wipe out the shame to his name that Bishara had brought. But then he risked bringing more problems and shame if he killed the others and might even lose his own life in the process. After a long pause, he uttered words no one saw coming. Give me a Bible. Shocked, Bishara handed his to him with two hands, and his father received it. He looked at the front and back and said, how do you read it? Bishara then approached his father and opened it to Matthew chapter 1. His father read it for a bit, 
and then closed it. I'll read this, and then we'll talk later. Leave now. And that was that. His uncle walked with Bashar outside, and Bashar went home. Brothers and sisters, I am literally receiving updates on my phone as we are here this morning. Yesterday, Bashar was taken again by his father, and he has been tortured for the last 24 hours. He has his phone hidden in his underwear so that he can give updates to Dave. When I hear about people like Bishara and Mubarak, I am challenged deeply in my faith. Do we believe that the gospel is worth it? Is it worth our time? Is it worth our commitment to reach out to others behind, around us to do good to them? To seek to restore those who have fallen among us? To bear the burdens of others who are around us? To share all good things with those who teach us? And may I even add, to remember those who are in chains and suffering for the sake of the gospel. Brothers and sisters, let us do good to everyone around us that they might see Christ. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we don't want to take, let this opportunity pass without praying for our brother Bashar, who right now is chained up, has been beaten, has been threatened to have his fingers cut off. All for his faith in Christ. And he says to his family, and he says to us, that Jesus, you are worth it. I will not deny my faith in Christ. Lord, may we take this encouragement to not deny our faith. And may we take these words from Paul. And as we have opportunities, do good to everyone, especially the household of God. I pray in Jesus' name.